All right, everyone, welcome back. This is episode 19 of Christian History and Ideas. I'm John Coleman here from Connecticut and joining me from the uh, snowy north, I suspect, uh, Dr. Nirmal Das. Yes, <laughs> indeed snowy. <laughs> well, it's snowy here too. Um, as we enter the, the second part of Advent in our uh, recording, the date that we're recording, the 17th, uh, we're being uh, pelted down here in, in New England with a big old storm. So um, it's good to, to meet here, uh, Dr. Das, and um, to take my mind off the shoveling and, <laughs> and this sort of thing. Great to be here, John. <laughs> Great. We're going to talk um, of all things as we are approaching uh, Christmas tide and uh, this uh, season, this cultural season, this religious season, and um, getting our minds in in uh, that spirit and and so forth. We're actually going to uh, take you and and we ourselves are going to travel in this episode and the next episode twenty. To China, we're going to talk about the Catholic population in China, particularly in far uh, western China, in Tibet. And uh, you don't have to do a double take there. Yes, we did say that there is a Catholic church in Tibet and it's been there for a long stretch. And uh, we're going to talk about that and all sorts of related topics. This particular uh, village, mind you, um, which we'll, we'll read a, a news story shortly, is, is notable because of its Christmas festivities, of all things. So, so many topics there. Um, the only uh, starting announcements, and we'll read these at the end is uh, any correspondence or any uh, suggestions and so forth. Uh, you may write us at Christian History and Ideas at uh, gmail.com. We'll have all other sorts of information, but let's uh, clear the decks here. And um, Dr. Das, I think we should begin with uh, possibly a mention of China in the Holy Bible. Yes, let's start with that. That would be interesting. All right. So this is from the uh, very appropriate uh, Advent uh, figure, Isaiah. Um, this is from Isaiah uh, 49 and verse 12. 49, 12. Uh, See, these shall come from afar, some from the north and the west, and others from the land of Syene. And that's spelled in this translation, uh, S Y E. N E. So with that, uh, once again, I'll recite it. See, these shall come from the far, some from the north and west, and others from the land of Syene. With that, Dr. Doss, let's take it away. Um, we'll set this up, and then we'll get into some maps and things. Sure, yes. So Syene or is probably, likely, um, the classical term for China, uh, Sunai. Uh, and um, of course, the, China, you know, the, 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 the world of China, as we know it, was known to the Greeks and the Romans, or the Western world, as the Chinese would call it. Uh, so now we should start maybe using their terminology uh, as opposed to ours. Uh, so the Chinese are aware of the West um, and the, the lands to the West. Um, and there is a lot of um, history of communication between the Greeks and the Romans um, and so forth. And this will lead us into, you know, the Christian period as well as we get into it. So <clears throat> China is not unknown and the West is not unknown to China. Uh, there is contact, there is connections, 
And we'll talk about a very important thing, which is the development of the Silk Road, which is going to be the main artery of communication. And there are other roads too that were Roman and Greek and so forth. Um, and uh, the chief among these is um, uh, a little mentioned river, but a very important river, and that's the Oxus River, O-X-U-S. Um, very, very important river in world history, actually, in Central Asia. Uh, it's in Central Asia, and it cuts right across. So these are the arteries, the, the communication highways um, of the time, which allowed China and the West uh, to rather easily communicate and, uh, and you know, interact for commerce and, of course, ideas and so forth. So uh, the two, we know, we may assume that the you know, two are uh, separate or they're self-enclosed and all this sort of thing, um, but they weren't. There was a lot of dynamism here. There's a lot of dynamic uh, communication and, um, and contact going on. And we have a lot of history of that, actually. Uh, and this contact goes really, really far back. Um, and we can, you know, look at that some other time. But for us, uh, it's, it's quite interesting that um, uh, this, uh, you know, the, 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 these uh, uh, roads of communication allow the context to happen and do what, what, what happens and what, uh, what, you know, comes about in our story. As we and I should say on the screen here, this is a uh, type of digital uh, representation of the river. And yes. correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Das, but this large body of water to the left of the screen is the Black Sea? It's the Black Sea, yes. Correct. Yeah. So and this, of course, links it up with Greece and Rome and the Mediterranean and all that. So you can see how easy it is uh, to access Central Asia and right into China uh, through this river. And uh, some say that this is probably the route also uh, that the early Greeks took into India in the seventh, sixth century and so forth. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a very interesting, um, uh, 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 you know, uh, river, uh, very little known, unfortunately. And some, some historians even think that this is, it's this river that Alexander the Great took into his, you know, conquest of the East. Uh, that way. So a uh, very important river that connects a lot of all of actually all of Central Asia and takes us right into uh, the borders of China. Right. Yeah, we often forget that the Romans were up in Armenia and they had access all around the Black Sea. If they had their way, they would have encompassed the Black Sea because it let them get trade up into Russia and things. We don't think, right. think of that being a front of, you know, the Russian Empire, but they, they, were, they were very much thinking that. Of course, and don't forget there were other roads. There's the Amber Road, there's the Fur Road, Siberian Road. So, you know, these, these uh, we, in our own, you know, I guess in our own worldview, we think these are all cut off and no one knew each other. And uh, no, the world was quite dynamic, just like today. People knew each other, knew about each other. And so, and of course, there was a great deal of curiosity. Um, so there were other roads of communication. And the, yes, you're right. The Romans never really got around to doing all that. They probably would have, uh, you know, but other things happened to them. Um, so, so it's a very important um, area for history, uh, Central Asia and China. And the point is that it's not isolated. It's not cut off. Um, it's open to everything that's going on in the West. Indeed, indeed. In class here at Apocalypse the other day, we had a discussion about uh, the possible influences. We talk about contact of East and West of um, Buddhism on Stoicism on certain um, conclusions there. So, uh, yeah, there's that that um, that interaction there. Dr. Well, we'll talk about oh, yes. that briefly, uh, we'll talk about that as we get into the history of 
Christianity in China, because Buddhism is going to play an interesting role in all of this sort of thing. Uh, but it's not, it's going to be surprising for people. It's not going to be the usual where, you know, oh, Buddhist influence, Christianity. No, it's probably the other way around. Okay. Uh, so we'll talk about that, uh, you know, later. Uh, Good morsel get, there. Yeah. Um, but before we get to that morsel, let's um, just to orient ourselves with um, with the topic here, I thought it would be good to, first of all, bring up a map of China, and in particular of Tibet, which is uh, a special focus of our, our uh, time today. And um, once that is done, uh, just a quick snippet about the about the, uh, the, the congregation in China. I think that'll orient ourselves uh, very well. So here is a map, everyone, of modern China with all of the provinces and so forth. Of course, the, uh, the coastal areas are where the, the massive amounts of population reside. Um, but our area here that we're looking at is Tibet. I, uh, I know the cursor can be seen and recorded here, so I'm circling Tibet here in the far west. Right, running right up against India and, and this sort of thing down here in the in the lower left. And above it, we have uh, Xinjiang, which has been in the news for the past couple of years, right? So these are contested areas um, as well, as far as the residents there are concerned, as far as the, the Chinese uh, Communist Party is concerned, they are part of China. So there's some, some uh, present tension there. Um, uh, Xinjiang is notable lately because of the uh, concentration camps with particularly uh, many hundreds of thousands of Muslims there. And then Tibet, I think, in our, our uh, Western press is, is not notable for Catholics by any means, except for one story we'll bring up about the Christmas celebration, but mostly because of the tension of the Buddhists in Tibet with the CCP. Right. And also, John, if you wouldn't mind pointing out to people uh, uh, Mongolia, which is up on the top there. Here we go. Here we go. Inner Mongolia and... Because that's going to be playing a very important, uh, 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 you know, role in our story as well. So just to orient ourselves. Okay. And this is this area here in Mongolia with my cursory work. That's okay. Excellent, right. Um, you know, just as a, a little vignette, I throw these in when, when appropriate. When I was working in the library, um, maybe 10 years ago in college, uh, we had a lady from China. She had she had grown up in in the southern southeastern area where the big big cities are and things, uh, and you know had come through the the, um, the the education system and so forth. And we we used to at lunchtime look at the globe, and um, you know and and talk about things. And one day, one of the other librarians just happened to point out, um, I believe it was Tibet. And she just said, without thinking about it, that's where all the terrorists live. And I thought, wow, just the, the, her education work from the CCP. It was really interesting. Just off the cuff um, dismissal there. Interesting. Very uh, interesting. Anyway, so we'll get into controversies maybe in our talk here. But here's our map. We have our Mongolia up here in the north, then our Xinjiang, and then especially our, for us, our Tibet down here in the lower left. Um, Nirmal, I'd like to switch to uh, just a quick blurb about the Christmas celebration. Sure, yes. And yeah. uh, throw it back to you there. <clears throat> All right. Uh, if, here we go. There we go. Okay. Um, 
please note that this happens to appear and and uh, on a website called ExploreTibet.com, uh, which is a, a tourist uh, website, which is very important for uh, certain cultural points we'll be bringing up probably in our next episode. But anyway. The title here from ExploreTibet.com is The Only Catholic Church in Tibet. When mentioned, Tibetan religion, Lama religion with dense nationality, color, and its mysterious atmosphere will appear in mind. It's a horrible beginning sentence. Shame on the editor. That's very clunky. Okay, but... Okay, the, the traditional Lama religion, the Buddhism and so forth, will appear in mind. Giving you the feeling of mystery and dignity. Most Tibetans believe in Buddhism, but there is a small village in Yingjiang near Naxi, in Yingjiang in Naxi ethnic group township of Markham County under Kamdo Prefecture in southwest China's Tibet Autonomous Region, where 90% of the villagers of this town believe in Catholicism. And it describes later on, it describes the, uh, the Chinese Christmas festival there, which is um, a melding of various uh, points that, that we can bring up. But now that we know our map near Mal and we have um, a little bit of a um, orientation there, let me throw it back to you. Okay, great. Um, and also Tibet, we should, um, you know, we'll look at that as well. This is, it's not surprising that there is still one church left, but there was a time when there were quite a few churches in Tibet because Tibet was largely Christian, but that's going to be later on in our story. So we shouldn't, uh, you know, um, jump ahead. So what I thought I would do very quickly is to um, give a context to Christianity in China, um, because often we think of uh, Christianity in our own day and age, um, you know, in 2020 and 21 and beyond, but it's a faith that is rooted very deeply in China, and it's very old and ancient in China, um, and likely more ancient than um, uh, Buddhism in China. Um, so the point is, uh, how old is Christianity in China? I mean, that's the, the basic question we should ask. Um, now, there are certain kinds of traditions um, which point to St. Thomas, who is, of course, Christ's disciple, um, who we know went to India uh, and evangelized there. Uh, and there are also traditions that he traveled from India into China. Um, and he did this sometime in 64 uh, AD, 64 to 87 AD is what uh, people are suggesting or historians. Um, this stuff is very new, this, um, this uh, kind of study into ancient history of uh, Christianity in China. Um, and it's only recently that newer things are being looked at, new archeological evidence is coming out. Um, and if you wouldn't mind bringing up uh, the, the, the freeze that we talked about, John, yes. um, at the Lianyong Gang freeze, um, which is very interesting. Um, and it's one of the latest ones that has been brought up. Uh, not this one, but the other one, the first one you just had, John. There, there we go. That's the one. Um, and uh, it's, it's, you know, it's a, it's a cover of a book in French um, by a very interesting um, uh, French historian, Pierre Perrier. Um, and, um, okay, yeah, there's others, good. Um, so 
the interesting thing about this frieze is that it seems to depict Christ, um, the Virgin Mary, and various scenes from Jesus' life. Um, and, <clears throat> of course, there are all kinds of, um, you know, uh, uh, discussions, controversies. Some say it's not as old. Uh, some say it's Buddhist. Uh, uh, so there's a lot of give and take right now among scholars. But for the majority of the scholars that, uh, um, you know, are looking at this, and Pierre Perrier is one of them, uh, and uh, he's suggesting that we're really actually looking at a very ancient and very early uh, Christian frieze. And frieze is, of course, carving on a, on a rock, on stone. Um, there's a very ancient and early Christian frieze uh, in China, and he's located various Christian elements uh, in that. Unfortunately, I don't think we can access too much of that, that those images on Google. Uh, we tried. Uh, but it's unfortunately it's not available. So perhaps what I should do is uh, maybe scan the book sometime, um, and uh, we can talk more about this. Uh, Absolutely. In Thomas's mission into China, uh, it's fascinating stuff. Uh, so there's a lot of this stuff, uh, archaeological stuff, I should say, uh, that is now being looked at anew and maybe discovered. Um, so the story is slowly being pushed back. Uh, of Christianity in China. So it's not a new uh, phenomenon at all in China. Um, and as we will look at it in the story you know, of China, Christianity is going to play some very key roles in the development and history of Chinese civilization. Uh, so I would like to begin there. So, you know, we have the various earliest records of, of Chinese connection to, to Christianity through one of the most, uh, you know, uh, through a direct link to Jesus himself which is St. Thomas. Um, so it's likely, <clears throat> if this is all going to be proven to be true as the studies continue, then it's likely we can conclude that Christianity was brought to China uh, uh, by St. Thomas himself as it was brought to India, um, you know, farther uh, to the south. Um, so it's a very important little, you know, uh, starting point for us. Um, so this takes us into the first century and we know there are connections with the Romans and, uh, uh, and the, the Hellenic, Hellenic world for the Chinese. So it's not going to be anything new. Um, but if we were to ask, you know, when specifically do we have more concrete evidence, um, that you know, comes about 400 years later on, uh, because we know around, um, uh, I think 537 or so, we have one of the first uh, Christian missionaries uh, by the name of San, uh, sorry, Mar Sergius, um, or Sergi Sergius, um, who goes to China and sets up missionary work there, and of course makes some a, a lot of converts. Um, so uh, around 500, uh, 537 AD, um, 1500 years ago almost, uh, we are looking at a very strong Christian presence. Um, and by strong, I mean we have the establishment of churches and monasteries, which of course means there's a population to sustain that kind of, um, you know, uh, structures, those kinds of structures, if we just look at it that way. Um, so China, uh, China is encountering Christianity, just like in the West from its very inception, of, from the very inception of the faith. It's not something that has come to it through the West or through Europeans or something like that. It's something a concurrent with what is going on uh, in the West. 
i.e. Christianity is expanding both westwards and eastwards. Uh, so I would like to, you know, keep that, for us to keep that in mind. It's not a self-contained thing with, you know, often we just think of the work of St. Paul and we just focus on that, that this is going to be the Christian world. Um, yes, but remember, Jesus had other disciples as well. Uh, and he, earlier he had sent out the 72 uh, before that. Uh, so these people were scattering throughout the known world. And when John read that passage, what I would like to suggest to you is this China is part of that known world. It's not a, you know, um, a land of mythology and so forth. Um, I think so that that really challenges both uh, us um, in the West on two different fronts. One, we, we talked about before, just our... Um, you know, maybe it's just the the, the, uh, the detritus of how high school classes are taught. Um, you know, we think of the Roman Empire being this very insular thing, right? There's that challenge that oh, there was this this um, much more fluid interaction. Um, and th but then there's the uh, the other one. Very often in at least Catholic um, history, uh, the narrative is always through the Roman Empire and then through, you know, the early medieval area in, in Western Europe. And that's where the whole story takes place. And I think this, uh, this reality is blowing our minds on both fronts. Yes, exactly. Now, we haven't looked at Christianity in Central Asia and Persia and India yet because all of this stuff is going on there too. But our focus has to be in China for now, otherwise we'd be all over the place. Um, but this ferment of uh, Christianity, the faith, is spreading like wildfire in the East. So Central Asia, you know, that where the river Oxus is flowing, as we looked at earlier, there's going to be monasteries and churches right there. And we're finding them now, actually. Uh, the most recent one was found, I think, 2012 or something. Um, because this area, strangely enough, has not been uh, studied, um, uh, especially studied for Christian presence. Um, so, uh, you know, maybe some other time you can look at the Christianity along the Oxus. That would make a very interesting topic. Um, so Persia, just to set the context, I guess we should do that. Uh, Persia, Central Asia is heavily Christianized very early on. And we can look at that later, uh, some other time. And um, it's from these areas. Uh, so when, when, I, when I mentioned, um, you know, Mar Sergis, the, the first known missionary into China, um, He's coming out of Persia. Uh, so he is a Persian, probably. It could, you know, we don't know his ethnicity, but certainly Syrian. Um, and he is traveling east because this is the known world for them as well. Uh, so they have connections with the Roman world, uh, and they also have connection with the Eastern world. And so the Eastern is very dynamic that way, the Eastern world, I should say. Uh, it's very uh, it's communicating with everybody. Um, so when, uh, you know, Marcergius Mar goes to, to China, um, he is, you know, he's doing what has been doing, done all the time. Um, and this is where another important, I think, aspect of our story comes in. And this is the development of, the, uh, of the, what we know as the Silk Road, which is what John has just shown us on our uh, map, you know, with all the camels going around. Uh, Convenient with the camels, they have to go around the camels. <laughs> Yeah. <clears throat> so as you can see through the map, um, you know, people are tra traveling and, and, uh, and making their way. Now, the interesting thing is uh, that this road is, uh, was ancient, but it was, um, I guess, um, um, permanently established, or we might say paved or whatever it could be, um, 
by a very important uh, Chinese general um, uh, by the name of uh, Pan Chao. And uh, he does this uh, sometime in, I think, 94 AD. Um, he's dead by about 102 AD. But by, by, one, by 94 AD, he has established what we will call the Silk Road, i.e. that permanent um, uh, highway linking China with the, the West, with all of the West. Um, so, Dr. Ross, as we envision the Silk Road, which is so influential in East-West uh, communication, um, ought we to think it as, you know, almost a single road, or is it um, appropriate more to think of it as something like the American uh, Underground Railroad, which is a series of trade routes going, or a series of, of routes going in a general direction? What would you say is more accurate? Uh, I would think of it, uh, think of the road as a river with all little streams, you know, oh. that come and flow into it. So all those little streams are the little, you know, passages, uh, you know, paths, roads, other streets, um, you know, other passages and ways that people have made in order to travel. But um, there is a very succinct, uh, you know, um, highway, i.e. it's a visible road as such. Um, paved and looked after, uh, because when Pan Chao makes this road, uh, he also establishes way stations, i.e. resting places, um, high, uh, you know, inns. So it's basically, you know, uh, inns, I think it were every um, uh, 20 miles or 30 miles, I'm not sure offhand quickly, uh, but there were, you know, stop, stopping areas or, or uh, caravanserais, as we will later on know them. Um, and uh, these stopping stations uh, are where people can rest and animals can feed and there's, um, you know, water and food and all that sort of thing. So there are restaurants set up along the way. Um, so it's a, it's a very, it's both. It's, it's more, you know, it's like, you know, ways and, and, and passages and streets and roads, but there is also a main passageway mm. or main river into which all of these flow. And that river uh, and that main road is maintained uh, through uh, imperial uh, edict. Uh, the Chinese imperial edict, you know, through ta you know they, they spend money maintaining the road, mm -hmm. um, looking after it and repaving it, and you know, um, um, uh, looking after the the the, the way stations, the resting stations, or the inns as we might call them uh, along the way. So it's 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 not a haphazard thing at all. It's a very structured uh, uh, thing. Uh, so the, when we talk about the Silk Road, we're not just talking about, oh, we just kind of head, you know, west or east and keep walking that way. Uh, it's actually a specific passage, a road that you walk on, uh, that you take. Um, and it's, um, um, it's well maintained. And it's going to be well maintained well into, um, you know, the, probably the you know, 17th, 18th century. Uh, it's only then that it begins to fall apart and, uh, you know, other things happen. Excellent. So I think, Dr. Das, what I'd like to do now is actually read a snippet from an article um, about the Christmas celebration in Tibet. Would that be sure. a, good, a good place to go? Sure, we could do that, yes. Okay, excellent. So one of the happy things that came that have come of 2020 is the, the JSTOR um, people have allowed for more um, any any old Tom, Dick, and Harry to pull um, to pull articles off of them. So we make hay while the sun shines. All right. So this is an article entitled, I'm just going to read the first paragraph here, but there's so much to unpack. Um, so a Tibetan Catholic Christmas in China, ethnic identity and encounters with ritual and revitalization. 
This article explores the annual observance of Christmas, the biggest festival of the year in a Tibetan Catholic village in Southwest China. I provide a short history of Catholicism in the Sino-Tibetan borderlands. And by the way, Dr. Das, can, is it um, appropriate that, you know, we have our Bible translation that uses Sain, you had mentioned a, a similar word. Uh, would that be the origin of our modern um, prefix uh, Sino? Yes, that is, uh, uh, or, you know, Sinology, which is the study of China, yes. Great. Um, the Borderlands and explore the annual quote-unquote performance of Christmas by villagers. Please note, viewers, that our first article is from a tourist website. Uh, very important. Um, I, the author, frame the syncretism of the Tibetan Christmas festival itself, a mix of Catholic ritual and Tibetan influences, against other ethnographic observations of Christmas. A second topic addressed is the influx of both Chinese and foreign tourists and academics who visit the village to observe and take part in the festival. In exploring the issue, I examine the relationship between these visitors and local Tibetan villagers during the festival. I suggest this plays into a larger move by Catholic Tibetans in the region to utilize the state development and transformation of the region as quote unquote Shangri-La to aid in promoting and developing their own unique identity as Tibetan Catholics. All right. Um, so, Dr. Nasa, I think a good place to move from here would be perhaps the interaction initially or in later history of, of, of Catholic culture and Catholic belief um, with, with the local uh, indigenous culture. Right. Um, now, when we get into these kinds of um, anthropological studies, we have to be very careful uh, because unfortunately, a lot of these anthropologists have very little understanding of history. And so their assumptions are ahistorical, um, which can be good or bad, um, you know, uh, mostly bad, I think. <laughs> uh, why I say that is because Tibet is not a stranger to Christianity either. Um, and, um, you know, very quickly, we can, you know, look at uh, the history of uh, Tibet, uh, Christianity in Tibet, which goes back to the year 690 AD. Um, and that is when um, we know that the very first churches were established and monasteries were established, sorry, uh, Christian monasteries, I should say, uh, were established because there are Buddhist ones too, uh, were established in this area. Uh, so, we're looking at about 1400 years, 1300 some years of Christianity. Um, so when we have, we say, oh, there's one little Christ, you know, uh, Catholic church uh, in, in Tibet. Well, that one little church, of course, uh, it's good that it's there, but it's not, um, it's a remnant as opposed to uh, something new and something Western. Um, it's, it's a remnant of what was there before, which was great which was amazing, which was expansive. Um, and the development of Lamaism and Buddhism is much recent in, in Tibetan history than, um, than Christianity. Um, so, um, you know, from about 690, we can start looking at and tracing uh, various, um, <clears throat> you know, interactions and establishment of Christianity. And this is, of course, going to be done by uh, missionaries out of Persia, out of modern-day Iran, Christian missionaries out of there, moving eastward uh, into these areas. 
Now, the Christianity that they're bringing, we should, you know, talk about that yes. too, um, is what we normally call Nestorian. Uh, and this has been given a very bad name, uh, you know, by people who should know better. Uh, but um, often we think of Nestorian historians as heretics, uh, but that is simply wrong. Um, they were not heretics. That's a misunderstanding and a misreading of, of Christian history. Um, uh, very, I don't know, do you want to briefly talk about the Nestorians, John? Or um, I think that topic we ought to save for our next episode in order to give ourselves proper elbow room to get into it. Sure. Okay. So what is it going on with, is that... Uh, we don't have this division. Let's very briefly look at that. We don't really have this division of Catholic and non-Catholic Christianity right now. Um, that is going to come much later on. Um, you know, right um, now being sixth, seventh century. Exactly when this all is happening. Um, so that schism comes what in 1053 or something. Uh, you know, with uh, with um, um, well, we'll talk about that at some other time. The Great Schism um, or the split. Uh, but at this time, it's still unity we're talking about. It's a, there's a unification. Uh, no one's questioning the Christians in the East as somehow questionable. Um, no, and saying we're better, we're, we're the real Christians, they're not Christians. Uh, so that consciousness doesn't exist. Um, so uh, when we're talking about you know, Christianity, we're talking about a faith that is still essentially unified. Uh, there isn't that much uh, debate. Yes, there are disagreements as Nestorians, you know, uh, are going to be doing later on, and we'll talk about that in a minute uh, or later. Um, but there's not going to be this consciousness of us and them uh, that is going to be developing later on, uh, which is going to isolate these communities, uh, unfortunately. This is the tragedy of Christian, of world Christianity, this isolation, self-imposed isolation of the faith uh, in geographically. Um, and it's going to devastate the Christians in the East, as we will look at it later, as to why they disappeared, largely. Um, and, of course, what happened uh, to them in the West as well. Excellent. Dr. Doss, if I can ask you off the cuff in our closing minutes here, wh what is your thought of the, well, one, are you familiar with it? And then, if so, what is your thought of the text, The Lost History of Christianity from... Um, I think it was about 15 years ago. Are you familiar with that book? Uh, I haven't read it. So if you okay. familiarize with me, I don't know it at all. So Okay, well, that author, he gets into this, um, uh, well, indeed, the, the, the title works very well for our subject. The law, This whole part of the church we, we, we think is, um, does, we either think doesn't exist or we think that after Chalcedon, you know, drifted into heresy. And that's an interesting topic altogether, that the development of the us uh, versus them. I know the other day I had a discussion with, with someone um, you know, about liturgy and public and private prayer. And I, it occurred to me halfway through the discussion that we were using very modern terminology for, um, you know, for this older, older um, reality of prayer. We were talking about, you know, liturgical traditions. And, and I thought how inappropriate, just in my mind, that we were using this kind of 19, once again, 19th century demarcation of things, trying to impose it on the 13th or 12th century, what we were talking about. This is the biggest problem, is that we're so imprisoned by 19th century terminology and mindsets, 18th century as well, 18th, 19th centuries. Um, you know, we really need to get away from, you know, 
Mr. Hume and, and company and all the rest of them that come after. Um, religions do not work this way as David Hume assumes they do. Uh, they do not work this way. Um, and especially Christianity. Christianity is not a bunch of, you know, pagan myths cobbled together to make it sound, you know, Christian and all of that, uh, that we all, especially in Christmas time, all that comes out, you know, oh, the pagan roots of Christianity, I'm sorry, of Christmas and uh, all of that. Um, no, Sol Invictus, near Mars, Sol Invictus, Sol Invictus. Oh, yes, uh, and Christmas tree, right? Christmas tree is pagan, German, you know, some, yeah. No, it isn't. Uh, it's, it's um, you know, it's, it, was, it's, uh, it was known as the paradise tree, uh, which means it's part of the whole story of Adam and Eve. And this is why the early medieval church had Christmas trees. It was a reminder of the original sin and Christ's redemption. So there was a, you know, anyway, we won't get into that. I Adam and Eve's feast day, by the way, being exactly. the 24th of December. Exactly. Thank you. Yes, exactly. Uh, but, we, you know, we've, we'll talk about that some other time. So, you know, there's a, this is a problem. There's an 18th, 19th century mindset we still have, and we haven't gotten away from this mode of thinking. You know, and it's, it's unfortunate that it becomes normal to say, oh, you know, Christianity just adopted all these things from all over the place. And it's what we'll talk about when we talk about Buddhism and Christianity, because the two in the East are now going to be combating or existing together. Um, and <clears throat> what's going to happen? in this area with them. Um, and we'll, as we will see, it's, it's the dominant religion is Christianity, which is going to influence a lot of stuff in Buddhism. Um, and of course, later on in Hinduism as well, but that's some other topic. Um, so yeah, it's a great point you make. Unfortunately, we're still prisoners of that mindset, you know, of the 1700s and the 1800s. Uh, and we really need to work hard to get beyond these things and because those are not good mindsets to have uh, because they lead us astray all the time as they led those people astray into all kinds of problems uh, like the French Revolution etc you know um, and the Russian Revolution and and, and so forth um, so yeah uh, we have to be very careful with the way we think and how we use the paradigms we have in our heads to explain the world and the past uh, because often those paradigms or those structures of explanation are wrong um, <clears throat> and are misguided and therefore they misguide us and lead us into falsehoods uh, and not the truth. Excellent so we'll leave it there and when we come back for episode 20 we're going to start off with a treatment of Nestorianism so-called and the split and the isolation that happens and then I think, uh, Dr. Dasa, what do you think about merging into that very topic you bring up about the um, Buddhist and Christian interaction in Tibet? Let's do that. And China as well. Let's do that. Yes. yes. Okay. Yep. Um, as we wind up in these closing minutes, the clock itself being a great um, artifact from the, uh, the 18th century, or at least the, the attention we pay to it in the 19th um, as we wind up, Dr. Das, uh, tell us about the postal for this uh, merry month of December and what are some articles we ought to uh, take our eyeballs to? Oh, it's actually great stuff there. Um, you know, you've written another great piece. Actually, you've wrapped up your uh, trilogy uh, of, uh, of We the People. So I would really highly recommend people, uh, uh, you know, We the People go over there and uh, take a look at uh, that great article that you've written. Um, so I would highly recommend that. Um, we have some great, more great interviews, <clears throat> a really interesting uh, discussion of what the reality of the French Revolution was, 
the great slaughter of Christians during the uh, French Revolution, because it was a profoundly anti-Christian movement, as opposed to anything else. So it had very little to do with life, you know, uh, uh, what was it, um, uh, uh, liberty, brotherhood, and all that sort of thing. Uh, it was actually a very profoundly anti-Christian and a very violent anti-Christian movement. Uh, so uh, this is a very great article that looks at the slaughter that happened of Christians in the Vendée region of, of France. Um, uh, terrible stuff. Um, and from, uh, you know, the, those wounds are still around. <clears throat> People still are, haven't recovered. So France never really recovered from the violence of the, of the French Revolution uh, to this day. Uh, so, yeah, there's some very interesting articles that people should uh, take a look at. Excellent. And then concerning the uh, school that Dr. Das and I run, Apocalypticistasis and Institute for the Humanities, um, that door is closing on old, old, man, uh, old man time for, for 2020, but uh, we're still taking students for the spring semester, uh, which begins the 11th of January, and you may find out the various courses that we offer, uh, Rome 1, Rome 2, Latin 1, 2, 3, each of these uh, designations being a semester proper, uh, introduction to historiography, introduction to pedagogy, and... Um, I'm sure I'm missing some Dante, Dante introduction to Dante and all that. You may go for all of that and for a look at the school in general to apocalypticistasisinstitute.wordpress.com uh, to find out about that. And uh, for any show tips, comments, and so forth, uh, please write us at christianhistoryandideas at gmail.com. Dr. Das, thank you so much for your time here. It was a pleasure, John, always. Take care.